Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories that you might have missed. Stories like these. Ten-year-old Black was a very special person, much beloved. And really, he used his life as a rich archive to tell us the history of the 20th century. One thing that I heard from union members across the spectrum was that they were concerned about their workers' health and well-being. Well, the vaccine gives us the opportunity to maximize safety in the workplace. Here she is vilifying the police yet again in a city that has over 100 185 expressway shootings this year alone, over 280 kids shot this year alone, and she acts like there's nothing else going on but this COVID. Joining me for those stories and more, Laura Washington, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst. Hey, Laura, happy Friday. Hi, Sasha. Thanks. And Crane Chicago business, government and politics reporter, A.D. Quigg. Hey, A.D. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Some sad news in Chicago this week. Legendary historian and civil rights activist Timuel Black died on Wednesday at his Hyde Park home. He was 102 years old. Laura, I know you two, you go way back. How would you describe him and and his contributions to the city? Yes, well, it's still hard to believe that even after 102 years, he has left us because he had such a rich history, American history, not just black history or Chicago history. He was sort of in many ways a walking and talking piece of history himself, you know, having come to Chicago during the great black migration. He later wrote about in his own book and and interviewed many other black Chicagoans about his uh, going away to World War II and being at the terrible Buchenwald internment camp where he witnessed terrible crimes that really inspired him inspired his activism to working with Reverend Martin Luther King in the 60s around the March on Washington, working with our future president, Barack Obama, when he first came to Chicago. He inspired, and not only did he teach history to all the people that were around him, but he inspired them to live that history to the fullest and to achieve all that they could. But he was also very uh, practical about it. I mean, he didn't expect things to turn around tomorrow. He wasn't one of those people standing in Grand Park when uh, President Obama won the election expecting that the world was going to change overnight, but he never gave up hope. Mm-hmm. He was funny, too, and, you know, lots of people would say <laughs> yes. he would, you know, he's always one to show up. You could always count on him. A.D., what are your thoughts on, on Mr. Black's life and, and legacy here in Chicago? My condolences to everyone who knew him. He was so remarkable. I'm not sure if there's an EGOT equivalent for someone like him, but Dr. Black would be it. Historian, activist, educator, elder statesman, living encyclopedia. And like you said, he was funny. I've so enjoyed reading and listening to all the anecdotes he would tell about knowing from, knowing from his birth that he needed to get out of the South. Yeah, He was generous with his time and his knowledge, shaped history in Chicago, helped elect Harold Washington, Barack Obama, and he had the presence of mind to document it for the rest of us uh, through his own notes and oral histories. Just a remarkable man. Do you have any favorite memories, Laura, of him that, that you want to share with us? Oh, well, my favorite is, he's, is a story he's told a lot, and that is about the fact that he was born on Pearl Harbor Day in December 7th. And on that day, on that very day, he was at a bar in Chicago celebrating his birthday. I think he was 23, and someone shouted out in the bar, uh, Pearl Harbor's just been bombed. And he said, well, she shouldn't be drinking so much. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's like, I guess he didn't know what well, he didn't know they were talking about Pearl Harbor. He thought they were talking about some woman named Pearl Harbor. And, oh, and then, of course, he was off to that war to serve. So right. really an iconic story. Well, later this hour, we're going to bring you an interview that Mr. Black did with legendary broadcaster Studs Terkel here on WBEZ back in 1999. That's coming up right after our recap. So stay tuned. I want to switch gears, ladies. I want to talk about the city's vaccine mandate. City workers, including firefighters and police, they're required to report their vaccination status by midnight tonight. But police union leadership is pushing back. What's the latest, A.D.? Oh, what a week it's been on this vaccine mandate. The latest this morning is that the city of Chicago has essentially brought this case to court, saying that uh, FOP President John Catanzara is urging of his membership not to submit their vaccination status to the city's portal equates to a work stoppage or a strike, which is actually barred in the police department's contract. They are not allowed to stop work. Katanzara has urged membership not to put on the city portal whether they are vaccinated or not. He has said that would essentially lead to uh, supervisors turning them away. Um, If you don't submit your your vaccine status, you are put on non-disciplinary no-pay status. And he said as much as 50% of the department in that case wouldn't show up for work. He had, had threatened to file suit earlier this week, but has not. The city is now saying Katanzara has to stop saying what he's saying. He's basically calling for a strike, and he should retract his statements from earlier this week about urging members not to comply. This is going to be a fascinating case to follow. I'm no legal expert. I think it might come down to whether this was adequately bargained and whether the city has the power to make a mandate like this. Mm-hmm. Now, the mayor says this is completely reasonable. Um, it's mandated in the military as well, and that officers are putting their careers at risk if they don't comply with this mandate. Well, FOP President John Cadenzara predicts that as many as 50 percent of the police force will actually stay home this weekend. And Laura, the mayor says that she's not worried about compliance, right? That's right. She says that, first of all, she's given herself a little bit of cushion and more time by saying that you know, we have to find out what the vaccination status is. You know, we have to look at the numbers. We have to see who's who. And that's going to take several days to sort out. So maybe that the idea is to get she's not going to force the issue, at least not through the weekend, to, to try to buy herself some time. I think it's very interesting that the FOP did not file that. I think they were looking for a temporary restraining order against the city, and Calvin Zara threatened all week that he was going to do it before today, and he did not. So I don't know. I wonder if there's some legal issues associated with that. But in many ways, uh, Lightfoot beat him to the punch, and now they're really going to go nose to nose. And, and I think AD is right. It's going to be not only hasn't been an interesting week, it's going to be interesting next few days to see how it plays out. Well, AD, if, if half the police force skips out on work, what's the city's plan? Well, the mayor has said, first and foremost, she doesn't expect that to happen, but she has also not laid out exactly what that plan would be. And like Laura said, she does have some cushion so that there isn't that immediate, as soon as midnight strikes, supervisors will be calling up their employees and saying, if you haven't submitted your status, you can't work. Mm -hmm. It's slightly less urgent than it seemed at the beginning of the week, but still pretty urgent. And I don't know how quickly... um, the courts will be able to act on this. Sometimes they have issued temporary restraining orders against policies going in place, which doesn't necessarily say opponents are correct, but might just mean that the court needs to study it a little bit further. Are there any consequences for defying the city's vaccine mandate? Well, there is that um, non-disciplinary no-pay status, but if you submit your status to the city and say, I have not been vaccinated, 
you are required to get tested at your own expense every three or four days. It will be interesting to see how the city plans to enforce that bit. Um, I know you have to submit that testing results through that same portal. There's going to be a lot of data to sort through. Um, even the mayor said we won't be able to tell you how much of the city workforce is vaccinated until this deadline on Friday. We'll probably have to clean up some data and we'll let you know on Monday. So all of this feels like it will be immediate, but it will also take time to sort through all this data to see who's vaccinated, who's not who's submitting their testing. In addition, what other public safety unions like higher-ups that are unionized at CPD and perhaps FIRE, what FIRE does. On Wednesday, the city eased its vaccine mandate for Chicago public schools employees. Now unvaccinated teachers can opt for weekly COVID testing and they can continue working. What are your thoughts on the city's approach to this issue, Laura? Is this the right move? Well, I think it's a move that um, is much more acceptable and workable at this point in time. It may, it may be a model for, you know, the, the mayor is free to change her mind or to pull back uh, with some of the other city worker uh, requirements. And so this might be a model, if, it, if this goes well, to see not rather than force people to, to get vaccinated, to give them a, a reasonable alternative, at least for, for the short term. And I think that CPS workers have to, until the end of the year, to maintain this alternative. If they don't want the vaccination, they have to get tested weekly. And I think the idea is that hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be near herd immunity or we'll be sort of out of the woods on this and the whole situation will be much more manageable. So we'll have to see. It might be a good model. So the mandate's watered down here when it comes to Chicago public schools. AD, is, is the mayor worried about staffing? Is that it? The big concern in a lot of places is staffing when you have mandates like these. And that's something that the Chicago Teachers Union has brought up. If you stay this strict, on vaccinations rather than encouraging people to get vaccinated and offering um, a testing requirement. In the meantime, you risk losing people that you can't afford to lose. The other problem that's happening at CPS is they have really struggled to offer testing at all of its campuses. They have been behind schedule. I think they're only on track to offer it at all campuses next week. Part of the issue as well, because students could be contributing to the spread, um, students are not signing up in big numbers to submit to voluntary testing either. I think the latest number is only 7% have signed up. That doesn't mean that there has been huge outbreaks at CPS. I Mm -hmm. think the district as a whole has seen six outbreaks involving three or four related cases, but there are a lot of kids in quarantine. So it's it's just a lot of stuff to juggle. Um, What CPS has control over is employees, not students, but students are, of course, at risk of being spreaders. And the whole thrust that the city is undertaking is we want to keep as many people safe as possible. We want the public who is interacting with city employees to know that they are protected, too. Well, the city got a visit this week from First Lady Jill Biden. She stopped by to honor Hispanic Heritage Month. Laura, it came less than a week after her husband, President Biden's visit to Elk Grove Village. How did her visit go? Well, it wasn't completely flawless. There was one interesting incident where uh, when she was traveling from one location to another over the couple of days she was here, a uh, protester jumped out in front of her motorcade holding a sign uh, protesting the lack of progress on immigration reform. He was immediately tackled by the Secret Service and taken away. It was just one protester. But I think it raised an issue that the Biden administration is going to have to continue to contend with. Is you, while you're courting the Latino community and Latino voters, you still haven't made much progress at the border. And you still don't have any kind of a comprehensive plan for immigration, particularly around the the Dreamers, which is a really sensitive issue right here in Chicago. But yeah, it was designed to showcase the Biden administration's policies, the Biden administration's progress. 
It came in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month, and she went to several sites that have a strong connection to the Latino community, including Daly College, the Arturo Velasquez Institute, and, and the museum and the, and the Mexican Museum. Yeah. She was also accompanied by a key player in Chicago in the Latino world, and that's Chuy Garcia, the congressman from the Southwest Side. And that, that's an interesting uh, connection because Chuy is perceived as a progressive Democrat, progressive and influential Democrat in Congress at a time when the Biden administration is trying to wrangle progressives to come along with his uh, funding plans. I want to touch on another story. That's the continued fallout from the sex abuse scandal among Chicago lifeguards. Park District CEO Michael Kelly resigned last weekend, just hours after Lightfoot actually called for his removal. Bring us up to speed, A.D. Right. So like you said, Mike Kelly, not long after Mayor Lori Lightfoot issued a statement saying she suggested the Park District fire him, get rid of him, <laughs> fire him immediately, mm-hmm. um, resign voluntarily in a very brief statement. Things were in flux for a few days until the other day when the Park District appointed Rosa Escareño, who was previously the head of the Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection at the city. When she left in July, it sounded like she was done with city service. She was looking forward to retirement, but she has been tapped on an interim basis to lead uh, the Park District. But there are, of course, still calls from aldermen and other critics that a lot more cleaning up needs to be done at the Park District. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot was asked specifically this week what is going to happen to uh, Park District Board President Avis Lavelle. She essentially passed on that question, but Alderman Scott Wagesback called for her to go, says there hasn't been enough accountability and that the Park District needs to restore its previous inspector general who had been digging into these uh, sex abuse issues for more than a year mm-hmm. to restore legitimacy at the district and specifically its lifeguard division, but more broadly, earning Chicagoans trust. So that's going to be punch item number one for Rosa Escareño. Laura, some were saying that it's been so obvious for months that Kelly's days were numbered, but the mayor had always been defending him, at least for a good number of weeks there. What do you think changed for her? Well, I, that's a good question. I, I understand that she did receive some information uh, just around the time of that emergency board meeting late last week that may have changed her mind. There may be some additional things we do not know about his conduct. Uh, I don't think uh, Avis Lavelle, the board chair, said that he himself is not guilty of any misconduct per se, but, but she is now acknowledging that he didn't do a good job of overseeing misconduct that, that had been on, ongoing, as you say, for a long time. Yeah. I think one of the interesting political sidelines of this is, is Rosa Escarino's elevation to this position. Like A.D. says, she was planning on retiring, but she's got 30 years of experience in city government, obviously very capable. If she were to, to take that job permanently, it would help. Lori Lightfoot a lot in the Latino community, which uh, particularly the Latino aldermen have been clamoring for more representation at higher levels in her government. So that might be, a, a, in some ways, a, a win-win for her. That's A.D. Quigg, government and politics reporter at Crane Chicago Business, and Laura Washington, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst. And we've got plenty more news to get to, including these stories. We have a cultural problem, a problem with the lens through which we litigate matters on behalf of the city, the corporation, that seems to leave out the greater good. Members of the city council, I too rise in opposition to this amendment to municipal code title nine with regards to scooter sharing. Chair recognizes Alderman Beal. Our rules state if you send something to rules, it has to go to the rules committee. You cannot change the rules once again to suit yourself. So let's jump right back into it. Chicago City Council met this week to discuss the budget and a few other issues, including e-scooters. Eddie, how'd it go? Oh, another fun one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) City Council in the Lori Lightfoot era has been exactly what I wanted in terms of uh, parliamentary maneuvering, (laughs) 
fights on the floor, actual democracy in action instead of rubber stamp stuff. Never um, a dull yes. moment. Never a dull moment. But yes, the one of the big items of the week was uh, the proposal, which has now been allowed, to bring electronic scooters back to the streets of Chicago uh, in the springtime. Basically, same rules as last time, except scooters will now be allowed downtown, which will be a fascinating experiment. This did get some pushback from Alderman, who said these scooter companies and scooter riders didn't do a good enough job keeping clutter off of the sidewalks, which is not only annoying for pedestrians, but can be a pain in the butt for uh, people who use wheelchairs or walkers. Mm -hmm. But uh, the city says this is an important move to make environmentally. This can help people get around short distances rather than using cars. They could just hop on a scooter. There will continue to be equity requirements in the contracting. So scooter companies will have to just deploy scooters citywide rather than just downtown or in affluent areas or in the West Loop fascinating experiment. Uh, the city will get at least $4.4 million from the licensing and then a little bit more in tax revenue. Transportation Committee Chair Howard Brookins says the, the city's stepping in the right direction environmentally here. Laura, what are your thoughts on these e-scooters? Yeah, I think he's dead on about the environmental issues. It's a very good thing to get less cars off the street and, and less traffic off the street. But there's also, I mean, I think about the East Coast the way I think about Uber. Uh, Uber, uh, when it came along, a lot of people were very critical of it, said it was going to put the taxi industry out of business. It has had an impact in, in that way, but it has also been about equity. And and like Uber, I think e-scooters, if the contract does play out the way AD is suggesting it will, there will be a requirement that these scooters be available throughout the city. And we know that time and again, whenever you look at public transportation, whenever you look at the transportation issues, the south sides and the west sides always get shortchanged and don't have the option. So if this is one more way to, to level the playing field in terms of transportation access, I'm all for it. Yesterday, Mayor Lightfoot introduced plans to borrow $4.4 billion to fund post-COVID infrastructure projects. Can you break down the numbers for us, A.D.? It's a huge number, was my initial reaction when I got the call from the city's financial office. And, and we knew there was going to be some borrowing. Um, that is the legacy of Chicago budgeting. So, yes, $4.4 billion, about half of that will be used to refinance old debt. So, like a mortgage, you can get a better interest rate and save money down the line. On some of that refinancing, the city will be using the savings to pay for uh, the police contract they recently passed. Uh, retroactive pay for officers in excess of $200 million. The other half is new. A big portion of that is going to O'Hare Airport to continue their terminal updating, their modernization plan there. There were so many worries about O'Hare getting lost, essentially, during COVID and the travel shutdown. But the city's aviation department has said, you know, full steam ahead. We still want O'Hare to be top transporter in the country. A big portion will also go to supplement the American Rescue Plan federal relief dollars that we're getting, the city's going to use more than $600 million in borrowing for new infrastructure. And it will be different infrastructure than we're used to. It's not just going to be roads and pipes. It's also going to be rehabbing vacant lots, installing new climate-resilient infrastructure, broadband internet, and updating parks. What I asked the city's finance team is, are we continuing what Mayor Richard J. Daley did by building up parks and adding a ton of city services using borrowing that we can't afford later. And the city says, no, these are going to be one-time expenditures that will help the one-time dollars that we're spending of, of the federal relief last and last and last and keep the city in good position for years to come. Mayor Lightfoot is in the home stretch of these budget negotiations, but she's reportedly butting heads with the Hispanic Caucus. 
35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa said that the mayor was, quote, unnecessarily combative in a recent meeting, and uh, he had criticisms of her track record hiring Latinos. What are your thoughts on the mayor's approach, Laura? Well, this this is a familiar story. Uh, the, the mayor has often been known to be combative, particularly behind closed doors, but those doors don't usually stay closed and, and things leak out. And, it's, and there were several reports that she said what some of the members of the Latino caucus said found offensive. She talked about pouring, uh, she used an expletive supposedly when she talked about pouring money in, into the black community. Mm-hmm. And, the, 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 and she was making the argument, you know, I've done a lot for the black community, I'm going to do something for you as well. But Again, the reports that came out of it said that she was being combative, that she was not sensitive uh, to some of the issues that they put forward. And I think the Latino caucus has a point when they say that, as I mentioned earlier, that there have not been enough high-profile top leaders of Hispanic descent in her uh, cabinet or in her administration, and they're asking for some reciprocity. How might this impact budget negotiations, A.D.? Well, what we also have to put in context is some of this traces back to the remap negotiation, which is happening at the same time as the budget. As we entered into budget season, this seemed like it would be good news all around. It's great when you get $2 billion from the feds. Um, I think it will impact it. I'm not sure if it will result in a no vote, but it might just make these final days a little bit harder, a little more tense for the mayor. Um, she also has progressive aldermen kind of pushing for a reduction in police spending, an increase in Um, anti-homelessness spending, affordable housing. It shouldn't be, you know what, I'm not going to make any calls. You never know what the Mm -hmm. Chicago City Council will do, and that's why we like it. But I do want to point out that this is coming in the context of the REMAP negotiation where Latino aldermen are saying, we are a much bigger portion of Chicago's population, and we deserve that many seats on City Council to correspond with it. Now, uh, today also marks Joe Ferguson's last day as Chicago's Inspector General. And he's raising several issues on his way out the door, including the city's shot spotter technology, the gang database that CPD relies on, uh, Chicago Fire Department's uh, response times, and, and much more. What can you tell us about his findings, A.D.? I've followed Joe Ferguson for several years. The past span of his last few months in office have just been a barrage of fresh reports. Like you said, he, he released one this week about the Chicago Fire Department not measuring um, how long it takes to respond to calls for action. Sometimes that's fires, sometimes that's medical emergencies. He had first pointed this out eight years ago, saying, you know, this is a life and death issue. We need to know if Chicago Fire is following best national practices for getting places quickly. He came out with another one uh, about uh, how city council committee chairs are using their budgets. Essentially, he found several unnamed aldermen are using their committee budgets to use staffers in their own wards rather than just dedicating them to committee work as they should be. Mm-hmm. He also came up in the conversation over this shot spotter contract, which the city has recently renewed. Um, he came out with a report earlier this year in August, finding that fewer than one in 10 shot spotter alerts between 2020 and 2021 resulted in evidence of a gun-related criminal offense being found. Instead, it changed the ways that officers treated residents, whereas shot spotter alerts were more common. There's a lot more stop and frisk in those areas. So him releasing all of these reports in so many varied areas and topics is just an indication of how important his role is as a watchdog for the city and why he called months ago when he said that he'd be stepping down 
to start getting someone in place quickly because of the important work that should not go interrupted. And the other thing that he does is help the feds on these gigantic corruption investigations that have taken over Illinois. He's Mm -hmm. played a key role in several of those. And not having an IG in place, in his mind, is endangering the way the city operates. Well, there's the fire department responding in one of your neighborhoods there. You can hear that. In the background. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, Joe Ferguson has been the, the city's top watchdog for more than 12 years. You know, we, we talked to him earlier this week on Reset. And as of Wednesday, two days before his big departure, the city had yet to name an interim IG. That seems kind of problematic to me, Laura. Yes. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, just this week, uh, the, the mayor spoke out on that. She wrote a highly praising um, op-ed for the Chicago Tribune uh, praising the Ferguson's work in his tenure and saying that, you know, she's looking forward to bringing on a new inspector general uh, very soon. But, you know, he's out the door. And in her op-ed, she says that the city is selection committee and that she's uh, assuring that there'll be a seamless transition. Well, I think, I think that's already impossible given the circumstances. You know, she has an interesting relationship with Ferguson because he's, of course, been there for 12 years. She inherited him from Mayor Rahm Emanuel, but they also had a, a close personal relationship, had worked together. So uh, even though there are some tensions along the way, she kept him in place. And to AG's point, uh, he's done an incredible job. He's going to be difficult to replace, but yeah. replace him sooner rather than later. We'll have to leave it there. That is the weekly news recap. Thanks to our panel today, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington and Crane Chicago business government and politics reporter A.D. Quigg. Now, if you miss the recap or a part of it, you can catch up on the Daily Reset podcast. It's available on all the major apps and platforms. A.D. and Laura, thanks so much. Have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us for the weekly news recap. To really understand the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Then please take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.